0: Please welcome Mr. Falk to the front here. All right, can you hear me, RK? Okay? I have a cold today, and if I wore the little mic or wireless mic, I think that I'm probably going to cough too much, and I don't want to do that in your ears all the time. So we're going to do it this way instead, and make it a little bit different. Um, how wondrous are the works of God? As Psalm 139 just spoke, that they are too amazing for us to understand everything. My prayer today is that as you come here, that you would just take a moment, you would take a second, and that, as Mr. Heckerley just prayed, God, prepare my heart. Help me to desire to hear your word this morning. Help me to understand your word and to see the truths that are here, and then to apply these truths. Into my life as well. And and that would be my prayer. And I'm just going to take a second. I I just would encourage you just to say a quick prayer to the Lord and say, God, prepare my heart. So I'll let you do that real fast. Okay, we've been going through Mark. And as I know, uh, we've been studying and looking at the deeds and teachings of Jesus Christ. And we've been able to apply apply those lessons into our lives. I just want to encourage you as maybe an older man to younger people, don't miss the opportunities of the amazing teaching that you've received. Don't miss the lessons. Apply them. It will make a difference in your life. I always go back to Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember your creator in your youth. And that is a challenge for each one of you. You are in your youth. Don't wait until you get old to start to figure out who God is. Remember him now. And make it make a difference in what you are about. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at, Mac, or at Mark chapter nine verses thirty through fifty. And we're going to do it a little bit different here. Um, we're going to just take a few verses and read them, or I'm going to read a few, and then we're going to make some comments about them, or I'll make some comments and then go on to the next one. So it's going to be a little bit uh, segmented here, but I think it's going to be better for us to see and, and to understand. But Mark chapter nine verses thirty. Through 50, and if you want a title, the title I would put down for you is Three Considerations for Your Soul, Three Things for You to Consider in Your Spiritual Self. In this passage today, what you're going to see is you're going to see a few sinful issues that the disciples have, and they're things that Jesus is going to address, the the sinfulness in their life, and he needs to address this. He's going to take it head on. Because he needs these men, these disciples that he's going to be working with, to change. He needs them to learn and to recognize their sin. And the reason why is because, in a sense, he's saying, you know what, you are my guys. You are my plan to spread the gospel. And so he has to address and, and hit head on some of the issues of sinfulness in their life. That they're going to be these men that are going to be able to take the gospel and to proclaim it as they need to. You know, it's always amazing to me. Jesus knew where these disciples were in their life when he chose them, uh, but he didn't leave them there. He didn't say, Oh, you know what? You're kind of sinful in this area, but we'll just let it alone. No, he dresses it. He's going to say, Listen, this is what you need to change. This is what you need to become uh, instead of being what you are now. He met them where they were in life, and he dealt with their sin. He prepared them to be used in ministry. There was no plan B. You're it, disciples. You're going to be the first wave that's going to proclaim the gospel and the others that would be with them. And it was a long process, but you know what? They did their job. You look at the world today, and there's Christianity around why. Because these men were faithful, and other men and women have been faithful. And honestly, it's our turn to be faithful as well. We need to get this, Nebraska Christian. If you're a believer, you're the plan now. You're the plan to proclaim the gospel and to move it forward. He knows what you are, just as you know the disciples. He knows your weaknesses, your your goods, your bads, your uglies. And so as we start to look at this today, uh, just a couple questions I'd throw out. I'd, I'd ask you to evaluate and to think through. First of all, how important is your faith to you, really? How important is your faith to you, really? Are you truly wanting to grow? Do you have a desire to grow in your faith, to become more the man or the woman that God wants you to be? And if you truly are willing to grow, are you truly willing to change? To change the things that need to be changed so that you can grow the ways that God would want you to. How important is your faith? As I come here today and just kind of preparing this, you know, the thought occurred, I am concerned for you, and I know the teachers here and other people would be concerned for you as well. Concern for your souls. Concern for your inner person the spiritual aspect of you that's going to live on and on forever and ever, whether it's in heaven or in hell. I'm concerned for you. And so what I want to do is I want to have your soul, your inner man, your inner woman, consider three truths, three challenging truths that are brought about here in Mark chapter 9, verses 33-50. Okay? So I'm going to ask you to consider Some things here. Your first consideration. Here's the first one. Number one, do you understand spiritual truths? So more than just kind of a flippant, yeah, I understand the Bible, and and that's it. But do you truly, in your soul, understand spiritual truths? We're going to pick up in the scripture this morning, uh, verse 30. It says this. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man has to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. What we see here is Jesus is now going to, he's, he's kind of working his way to Jerusalem, okay? And when he gets to Jerusalem, this is going to be the last time he goes, because he's going to be crucified when he gets there. But he's in the process. He's been in Caesarea Philippi, and and we saw that before Christmas break. He's gone to the Mount of Transfiguration, and we've seen that. And now he's working his way south towards Jerusalem. He's going through Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, and he's teaching his disciples. And he's been doing this, but now he's on the, the route to get to Jerusalem to become the sacrifice for believers. And one truth that he's trying to get them to understand is this idea that the Son of Man is going to be dead, he's going to be killed. Okay, and then he will raise three days later from the dead. But they don't understand. It. That's what the Bible says here. Um, they do not get that. And we have already seen this before. Because if you go back to Mark chapter eight and you look at verse thirty-two, it says Jesus stated this same matter plainly. He made it as clear as possible to these disciples. This is what's going to happen. And if you remember that one, that's where Peter rebukes him and pulls him aside, and says, "Oh no, that's never going to happen to you, Jesus." And Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan." Because it is going to happen, we see it in chapter nine, verse nine, which is with the transfiguration. But Jesus talks about don't relate what you have seen, Peter, James, and John, until you or until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And it says there in verse nine that they start to wonder. They they kind of grab onto that statement. What's it mean? He's going to rise from the dead. They don't get it. They don't understand. You also, if you'd look here, but then also in verse uh, thirty-three and thirty-four of chapter ten. This one really is interesting to me. <clears throat> Jesus again states plainly that he's going to be turned over to the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's going to be turned over to Jewish leaders. He's going to be killed. He's going to be raised three days later. And immediately after that, James and John come to him and say, Hey, Jesus, you know what? we got a favor to ask of you. In the kingdom you're going to form, uh, we want to be on the left and right hand of you. They don't get this idea that I'm dead. I'm, I'm going away. Oh, no, it's, a, it's an earthly kingdom. And it just goes right over their head. They don't get it. What you see here when Jesus is talking about this is he's stating the gospel. He's stating the purpose of why he came. He's talking to the disciples and trying to get them to see that his kingdom is not of this world. They think it is. And that's, it, it's inconceivable for them to think that he's going to die. And that's why they can't understand this. They're thinking of a physically worldly kingdom because they think they're going to be part of it, and they think they're going to be in the the leadership of this kingdom. They're going to be in the high places, and they want the best spot possible. They can't understand it, honestly, and this is what you need to understand, because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them yet, and the Holy Spirit has not told them or helped them to discern and understand what Jesus is saying. For us today... So that's the context of those verses, but I think it's so important for us to take a lesson out of this as well. For us today, if you've listened in chapels, as long as you've been at NC, if you've been listening in Bible class, you know what? You've heard this gospel message over and over that Jesus talks about here. You've heard the story how Jesus came to this world to pay the penalty for sin. You've heard that anyone who believes in his sinless life, his death, his raising from the dead, that they will have Christ's righteousness given to them that they will have eternal life, that God will look at them as being righteous and saved. You've heard that over and over. And that's honestly all that matters is the gospel. You have heard, but do you understand the spiritual truth that is found there? Does it go, go from the ears to the heart, or is it just in the head and that's it? And so here's some things that you have to evaluate. Does your eternal destiny of your soul concern you? Does your eternal destiny of your soul concern you? Or are you indifferent? You lack interest. You lack concern of what's going to happen when you die. You don't care. If that's the case, you need to hear this. And I'm not being harsh, it's just the truth. You're an unbeliever. And I want to talk to you for a second, for you that are unbelievers, that have a lack of interest or concern in the gospel, that it doesn't matter. Don't believe it. The reason why you cannot understand this spiritual truth at this point is because you are spiritually dead. The Holy Spirit is not within you. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, but a natural person, that's a person that does not have the spirit, it's a person that is an unbeliever, an unbeliever does not accept the things of God or the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, if you've been in my Bible class and I know other classes, you hear this, cannot, you are unable to understand spiritual truths because they're spiritually appraised, they're spiritually discerned. That Needs to change. And I say that with all my heart. And I, I want, if you're an unbeliever, to understand you need to change. If there's any twinge or tweak in your heart that says, you know what, I need to look at this, then I would encourage you to ask God to reveal truth more to you, to talk to somebody here, a Bible teacher or another teacher, and to ask God to change your heart so you can't understand these things believers, Christians that are here, that's a prayer that you should be praying as well for your fellow classmates. God, help those that don't understand to have the truth revealed. If you are a person that is there, you do need to confess your helplessness and your sin. You can never become righteous on your own. There is nothing that you can do that's going to save yourself. There's nothing that you can add to do that. Repent Have a change of mind. Have a change of direction in your life. Believe in the work of Christ and his work alone, and don't reject that truth. The blood of Jesus is the only payment for sin. There is no other payment. Christians, let's talk to you for a second about this. You understand spiritual truth. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a Christian. The Holy Spirit has has revealed this to you about the gospel. But my question would be for you is, are you indifferent to the spreading of the truth? Does it really matter to you, the gospel, that you're uh, on board enough to say, you know what, I need to share this with others? This is your job. Do your job. Jesus lived and died and rose so our sins could be paid for if we believe. That's undeserved. There's no way that we deserve any of that. And it's not just believing and having an easy belief system in your, in your ideology. You must grow in holiness. Christ is your Lord. You must live differently. You must deny yourself all the pleasures that you think are pleasurable in this life and live for him and follow Christ. And I want you to hear me on this because if you don't understand everything about Christianity, about the Bible, that does not mean that you're not saved. But what it does mean is that you need to continue to grow in knowledge. And you should be wanting to grow in knowledge and learn. There's a dangerous thing that I think is so important for us to understand. American Christianity. Most of you have grown up forever in a Christian home. You've gone to Sunday school. You've gone to youth group. You've gone to NC. You've gone to all these religious things. And it's easy just to believe that, oh, you know, because I'm a part of this, then I'm a Christian. I want you to hear me. There are many who believe in America that they are saved and they are lost as lost can be. And I pray that you're not that way. I pray that you have heard the truth. That's a sad statement, but it is true. Why else would you have the verses where Jesus says, leave me, depart from me, I don't know you, even though you say that you did things for me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and grow. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is what saves you. Not just because you're an American. Not just because you've gone to church your whole life. That's the first consideration for your soul. And I hope you'll consider some of those things for a while. Second one, second consideration. Okay? Do you recognize arrogance and pride in your life? Do you recognize arrogance and pride in your life? You know, I want to say that I've I've been working on humility, and I'm proud to say that I've conquered humility. That doesn't work very well, does it? Okay? That statement that I make there, do you recognize arrogance and pride in your life? It is assuming, and and more than just assuming, it's stating that there is pride and arrogance in each one of our lives. Okay? Maybe more in others, or some than others, but it's there. It's there. And you see it in the scriptures here, and that's what we're going to look at here, verses uh, thirty-one, or excuse me, thirty-three through forty-one. Before we look at arrogance and pride, let me give you the definition of those because I think this is really important to understand. Pride is looking and being very satisfied in what you have accomplished or what you have done. Look at what I did, okay? Look at what I've become. Arrogance comes out of pride, and arrogance is when you start to think better of you than other people. You think you're the most important thing. Huh, look what I did, and you have never done that, so I'm so much better than you. And they really go hand in hand. You know what? The disciples had to deal with this, and is what we're going to read in chapter 9, verses 33 through 41. Let's read it. It says this, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But the disciples kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, but whoever receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. So Jesus asks the question here, uh, what were you talking about? What was, what was the big to-do on the way to the house here in Capernaum? And uh, Mark comes out and shares with them that it was about who is the greatest. See, they still have the same idea going on, don't they? Hey, I'm, I'm jockeying for position in the new kingdom. When Jesus becomes king of, of Israel, then I'm, I'm fighting to become the next in line. Who's the greatest? Who's going to get the best spot? Who will be first in this new kingdom? And Jesus totally destroys this mentality. And he says, you want to be first? Then be last. Now, we've heard this over and over again. You've heard it over and over again. It's interesting to me, uh, being a coach, being a teacher, just watching you as a class body interact sometimes and to see who are people that really serve. Who are people that kind of look at it like, you know what, that's below me and I'm not going to do this. And I see it. There's others that see it as well. Uh, You can look at anybody, any group of people, and deal with that. There are some of you in here that are servants. There are others that are very arrogant and would not do that to save your life, to be very honest, okay? This is where do you want to change. Maybe sometimes it's you have to see things or or be called out on it to change. If you want to be first then as Jesus says, be last, humbly serve other people. That would go against everything the disciples believed. It's everything that they would have been taught in the Jewish system, but it's hard for us to do as well, right? Oh, I'll serve if everybody can see what I'm doing. But when nobody knows, and I'm just gonna do the, the, the worst job possible, but I'm gonna do it because it needs to be done, um, that's hard or harder for us some to do. You know, it's really interesting that this lesson that Jesus is dealing with with pride and arrogance in the disciples doesn't go away. You look at the Last Supper, and Jesus, when he washes the disciples' feet, why does he do it? To teach them, again, love each other. They're all sitting there saying, you know, somebody should wash my feet. Somebody should wash my feet. You know, John, wash my feet. And Jesus says, I'll wash them. They're still having this issue even there. Are you focused on yourself? It's something to consider. When I focus on myself, I get the pride and the humility, or excuse me, pride and arrogance in my life. You need to humble yourself. Get over you. Get over yourself. There's other ways, though, than just being kind of totally self-focused and internalized upon you. Because as Jesus kind of deals with this and goes on, He starts to look at when you are proud and arrogant, it's really easy to be critical of others and especially other believers. Have you ever said a wrong word or or maybe a negative word about a fellow brother or sister in Christ? It's not what we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to look down or, or become arrogant or proud of that either. And so Jesus again, these these disciples are working for a position in their worldly kingdom, what they think is coming. You know, you could even see maybe part of the reason why they were talking about who the greatest is Peter, James, and John had just been on the Mount of Transfiguration to see Jesus in his all his glory and to be with Moses and Elijah. And then to come back down and say, Hey, you know what? (laughs) I was with Jesus, and you should have seen what happened. And oh, you didn't get to go. I must be the greatest. And oh yeah, by the way, you know, we came back down here and you couldn't even cast out a demon. <laughs> what are you? Be easy to do. And so in the midst of this, in, the, in the, this turmoil that, that these disciples are in, Jesus takes a child. Now in the Greek, if you look at the word here, child is a small toddler. So probably one that can't really talk, probably just learning how to walk. And this little child comes over next to Jesus, probably, you know, kind of barely walking over to him, and Jesus takes him and puts him in his lap, and he, he says uh, he's going to use him as an example. And um, I was looking at what John MacArthur said about this, and I, I think that he explains it probably better than I could explain it, so I'm just going to read what he says, um, but I want you to hear this, because it is important to understand um, the, the heart that we need. MacArthur says this, this child, this toddler, is an object lesson, of lesson, visualization. A child has no power, no achievement, no accomplishment, no greatness. A child is weak, dependent, ignored, vulnerable, and has nothing to offer. This is a perfect illustration for a believer. Whoever receives one child like this in my name and we're not talking about an actual toddler, a little, a little baby. but We're talking about a spiritual child of God, a Christian. And he says, whoever receives a child like this, a Christian in my name receives me. What Jesus is saying is this, when a believer comes to you, Christ comes to you. You ever thought about that? That if you are a believer, a fellow believer, and you come to somebody, and I start to maybe become arrogant about that person or anything, or you do that, uh, I'm, I'm not. He's representing Christ, or she's representing Christ. So when a believer comes to you, Christ comes to you. Here it is, right here. How you treat another believer is how you treat Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you receive this child, and, and there's no animosity, there's no arrogance, there's no pride towards this, there's no hatred there's no negativity. That's how you receive me. And yet, if you do the same thing with fellow believers, what are you doing? If you are being negative, if you are being judgmental, if you are being critical, how you treat another believer is how you treat Christ. <laughs> MacArthur goes on to say this. What a profound lesson this must have been, for, for, uh, been if these men got any inkling of what he was intending them to understand. Here you are, disciples, stepping on each other's necks Here you are trying to promote yourselves above each other, and instead of opening your arms to become the servant of each other, uh, or instead of opening your arms to become the servant of each other, because I come to you in each other, you've rejected me. Christ comes to us in every other believer. That's an amazing truth, and that's something to consider. How do you look at people? How do you deal with people? How do you interact? How you treat other believers is how you treat Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you should just accept everybody because they say that they are Christian. You have to be discerning. But how does your arrogance and your pride look in your life? And each one of you has it. I have it. Do you reject a fellow believer because of your position or because of your perception of them? I think it's a very serious thing to consider. If you go on to verse 38, uh, there's two other little lessons that Jesus gives to this with this pride and arrogance. And John says something like, hey, you know, Jesus, we saw this guy who was casting demons out in your name, and we told him to stop. It's like, why would you tell him to stop? And yet that's what they did, because there's pride and arrogance. You're not one of us. You can't do that. That's our job. They were critical of somebody doing the work of Christ. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't do that. He's working for me. He's not against us. Just because he's not part of your group doesn't mean that he's not doing what I'm asking him to do. Don't do those things. And I think that's really important for us to understand as well. Sometimes it's easy, you know, well, we've got it figured out, but that other group of Christians, you know, they don't have it figured out. We are all to be faithfully pursuing the things of Christ. May we do that. In verse 41, Jesus even goes farther and says, even the smallest acts of kindness done to believers is considered being done to him, like giving a glass of water. So may we look for opportunities. May we spur each other on and encourage each other to do the things that are going to make a difference in those ways. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, very familiar verses, I'm sure. Do nothing from selfish or empty, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, humble yourself. Consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Be concerned for other people, not about what they are or what they are to you, but who they are. They are a Christ follower. Going on. Third consideration. For your soul. This is always a tough one. It's one that you hear a lot, and I think it's easy to just kind of downplay it. Okay, But it's we see it in Scripture here. The third one is this. Do you confront the sin of your life? Do you confront the sin of your life? Verses 42 through 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast, and he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your feet, your two feet be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Real quick here. You need to look at sin radically in your life. This is how Jesus looks at it. To say, you know what? You would much rather be drowned by a millstone, a heavy stone being put around your neck and thrown into the ocean, than sinning, even in the smallest way of sin. It would be better for that to take place. Stay away from sin and don't induce others to sin. That's a serious warning that Jesus is making here. Don't tempt others into sin, and that's easy to do. There's little sins that are so easy to fall into, you ever gossip? Hey, let me tell you about Mariah. You want to know about Mariah? I'll tell everybody. Is it all right, Mariah, if I tell them? No? I don't have anything to tell about Mariah, okay? But the little things, and we love it. Don't you kind of get a pleasure? Oh, I'm going to get some juicy morsel here. Proverbs 8.18, or 18.8, says the words of a gospel are like dainty morsels. Oh, I can hardly wait to get this. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Don't draw people into sin is what Jesus is saying here. Don't set a sinful example. Don't discourage others in their walk with Christ. And make sure that you encourage righteousness and not unrighteousness. See your sin for what it really is. Jesus makes it very clear as a believer you must take extreme actions, extreme actions towards the sin in your life. Verses 43 through 48, do whatever it takes to kill sin. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. It'd be much better to have one hand than to sin. Now, Jesus is not really telling you to cut off your hand or you gouge out your eye or anything like that. But do you understand the, the extremity of sin, the ugliness of it, how much God hates it? No, we make sin our friend. That's eh, just a little thing. It's okay. It makes me feel comfortable. You know, I know it's not right, but it's okay. It's not okay. Jesus is calling for a radical change in attitude about your sinfulness. And, you know, get rid of sin. There, it, it, to get rid of sin is going to cause radical actions. <laughs> What's your phone do to you as far as your sinfulness? I know Pastor Bob talked about that a while back, Bob Gannon. What about your computer? What about the things you hear or watch? If it's sinful, why do you allow it to be there? Could you, here'd be a challenge for you, could you take away your phone for a day, for two days, for a week? Could you survive? Honestly, why could you not survive? What's the reason why you couldn't? You know what? When I was your age, we didn't even have a self thing called a cell phone. We survived. Of course, there were other things. But how often are those the things that lead you to sin? What about your thoughts, your words, your actions? What is your life truly about? Is that what you really want your life to be about? So, you got to answer that first question. What is your life? What does it need to be about? But do you really want that to be? That's what it's about? Do you hate sin? If you're a believer, here's the great news sin is not your master, but sin can control you when you allow it to control you. That's an amazing truth in Scripture. Sin is not your master. Romans chapter 6 would talk about that. But if you allow sin to control your life, oh, you know what? I'm caught on porn and I'm going to watch it no matter what. I can't get myself out of this. And I'm allowing myself to do that. You're allowing it. It's not that it's master over you. You've allowed it to become the master over you. Kill sin. Repent of it. Sin has got to be dealt with. And the only way it can be dealt with is by the blood of Jesus. And if it's not dealt with it that way, then you will be put into hell. And that's what Jesus talks about here. Do you understand the radical change of mind that must happen in believers? And yet, we can maybe understand a little bit, but then we allow it to continue to be there. In verse 48, what you see here, Jesus talks about that hell is forever. There is no second chance. Once you go to hell, you are there. He talks about a worm there that's kind of interesting where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, what is the worm? Uh, the best illustration you can get is Gehenna, which would have been the, the pit outside of Jerusalem that would be burning things. There wouldn't have been plastic. There wouldn't be rubber. There wouldn't be the things that technologically that we would have today. It's pretty much dead carcasses and just grossness. And you would have maggots over everywhere and worms and all that kind of stuff. And a worm eating away at a dead carcass. You maybe have seen that before. okay? But this idea here in, in hell, it's not a worm eating your body. But this worm would be, in a sense, doing the same thing to you uh, mentally. Be like a maggot feeding on a rotting corpse. It's your conscience, it's your guilt that I rejected God, that I rebelled against him. And it would never end, that guilt. So, three considerations. Real quick here, last thing, two verses. Uh, Jesus ends with a challenge in here, okay? The first one, as a Christian, be useful, is what he he really kind of comes back to. So, hey, disciples, you've done all this stuff. Be useful. Don't live in sin. Get rid of your pride and your arrogance. Be useful. And he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, Nobody is necessarily sure what that means, that statement means. Uh, Here's a couple takes on it. One is it might be that believers will face persecution and suffering. Uh, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, talks about fire and salt together in the grain offering, and so there's this idea, the grain offering is about devotion, commitment to God, and the salt is kind of God's persevering or, or preserving. Okay, So that might be a take on that. Um, what I really wonder is this, that Jesus has just got done talking to the disciples about sinfulness, and I, and I wonder this, that he's saying, listen, you're not your own. You're not your own. You're going to face trials, but I'm going to pres- preserve you through these. Remember, you're not your own. Fight the sin of your life. You're consecrated to me, to God. Fight the desires of arrogance, fight the desires of pride, and don't sin. The last one, verse 50, there's just an encouragement here, don't become unsalty. Salt was used for flavoring, it's used to preservative, and Jesus says here, have salt in yourselves, okay? Live out your faith, be obeying God's word, live out the fruit of the Spirit, and be used by God. So we need to end this uh, you might want to write this verse down. This would be something that D-group leaders you can look at. Second Peter chapter one, verses four through 10. If you start, pretty much, it's going to be in verse five, I believe is where you want to start. Uh, Peter just encourages here, and he says this: "In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness." And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours, hear this now, and are increasing, they do not make you useless or unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be useless. But how am I going to do that? I need to consider the things that I've talked about. Knowledge of gospel truth. Sin in my life and conquering it. Pride and arrogance, fighting through that because I want to not be useless. I want to be used by the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Uh, May you challenge us, just even a a small nugget of something here. May it change our lives, search our hearts, help us to follow hard after you. Uh, Your ways are so wondrous, as Psalms say. And so may we live for you and be committed to you. I pray for anybody here that is an unbeliever, that you would help them to see the sinfulness of their life, the hopelessness that is there, the helplessness of their life, and that they would be able to have you change their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that they could respond to the gospel message, that you would bless them with faith. Lord, may you go before us through this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.